I wonder how many of you have those moments in your life where, like, you have a thought about something and, or, or a word about something, and then everywhere you turn, you're reminded of that. Now, I'm not talking about the times like when you, you, you say something in conversation with someone about wanting a pair of purple, dot, purple polka-dotted anteater skin cowboy boots, and the next thing you know, Google and Amazon and Facebook are all pushing you ads for purple polka-dotted anteater skin boots. I'm not talking about that reminder. I'm not talking about when you get in your car and your phone automatically pulls up and tells you where you're going and when you'll get there, and you didn't tell your phone anything about what your plans were. I'm not talking about those kind of reminders. Those are things you should be scared about. I'm talking about the fact that, you know, you, last week we talked about zeal, Pinchas in particular. Pinchas is zeal, which is certainly not a common topic of conversation. How many of you at work or in your dining room table had a conversation about Phineas, which is his good old-fashioned King James name, Phineas? Not many, but here's what happened. I gave that message last week. I stopped talking about it. I mean, I had already done it. That was, that was done. But starting Sunday, everywhere I turned, I was confronted with some other thing about Pinchas and Azil. Found a new Bible, a new podcast, great podcast, by the way, called The Biblical Mind. Um, and what is, what is the uh, focus in it? Pinchas. I get a new blog that, I'm, that someone sent to me. I read the first one. What's it about? Zeal, Pinchas. I'm read, I get a new book that's about Romans. And the first thing that I read in the book is about Pinchas and zeal. So to use one of my most hated, overused, cheesy phrases in existence today, I leaned into it. I hate it when people say, lean into it. But I, I did. I leaned in zealously to the zeal that God was obviously reminding me about. And it took me to an interesting place. Because we talked about Elijah, we talked about Moses, we talked about Pinchas, but we didn't talk about one of the Bible's most zealous characters. Most zealous characters. One actually who was influenced by Pinchas. And since the slide is up, you know who that is. <laughs> Our brother Shaul, who is commonly, you know, we know and love Paul. Paul has written all of the theology for the Christian church, right? He's, he's the most popular guy in the Christian church. He is also the most misunderstood guy in the Christian church and in a lot of people's minds. Even Peter said he was difficult to understand. But, you know, you might not have seen it exactly, but today, because zeal is the theme of the week, I want to show you how Pinchas affected Paul. And ultimately, if you're a Gentile follower of Yeshua, how Pinchas and Paul affected you and their zeal. And we're going to tie all that together ultimately into this season that we're in. And what season are we in right now? It is called the three weeks. It is the long, hot, dry summer. It is the commemoration, the memory, the mourning, the somber, serious time and sad reflection of the destruction of the temples 
and the exile that is still actually occurring. What does that mean? Obviously, the Jewish people are still in exile. The temple has not been rebuilt. But for us as New Testament folks, you ever thought about the fact that you also are in exile? And part of it has to do with the destruction of the temple and the fact that when Yeshua came, his mission was not completed, partially by his choice, partially by God's plan. But nevertheless, we are not in the kingdom. The glory of God has not been revealed. So when we mourn the temples and people look for a reason why that matters, if you're a follower of Yeshua, if you're a disciple awaiting the kingdom, it matters to you just as much as to the most orthodox Jewish person in the world who's mourning the destruction of the temple, who actually, just as a side note, are also mourning the fact that Messiah is not here, just like us. But that's the season that we're in. And, and, you know, that, that, so that brings the question, why was the temple destroyed? Okay, we'll get to zeal. Why was the temple destroyed? There are a lot of opinions, there are a lot of theories, but the sages of Israel provide us with one very compelling reason, and it is, if not the main thing, certainly one of the main things that Yeshua came battling against. It was a core component of Yeshua's message, this thing that the sages say destroyed the temple. And we, we read and hear his directive to correct this failure all throughout his teaching, all in his efforts in action in the New Testament. We see his action to change this thing, this thing that the sages say destroyed the temple. I'll tell it to you in Hebrew. Sinachinam. Do you know what that means? Baseless hatred. Baseless hatred. Hatred without a cause. Hatred for no good reason. There is good hate, did you know? Hating sin, hating injustice, hating someone who, who would harm a child. I mean, there is this sense of, of, of justified hatred that we feel toward great evil. But baseless hatred is no good. Yoma 9b in the Talmud records this. The first temple was burned down because of idol worship, sexual immorality, and bloodshed. But by the time the second temple came around, Judaism was supposed to have had it together. We were pious. We had Torah. We had the temple functioning. We, had, we, we were living these sort of holy lives and pursuing all of these great things. But the temple was lost because of sinachinam, groundless hatred, because it permeated all aspects of Jewish national life. And factionalism might be a better way to say it. Factionalism, divisions. And from this, though, here's what the Talmud says. Baseless hatred, though the temple, first temple was destroyed for idolatry, murder, bloodshed, all those things. Sinachinam is worse than all of those things combined. When people hate each other, sure, it destroys buildings, but it also destroys society. But in an interesting way, what we'll see is that that baseless hatred has some of its root in Pinchas and his zeal. Better phrased, the corruption of Pinchas's zeal ended up contributing to the destruction of the temple, the blocking of the kingdom, and Paul was affected and we can learn from him about ourselves and what we need to do. Because Pinchas, you see, was quite the inspiration. What are the Maccabees famous for? 
What's, what's their deal? Hanukkah. But what is Hanukkah? Hanukkah is a remembrance of the zealous resistance of the few. That's what Hanukkah is. This holy family that stood up to Antiochus. Their zeal in protecting Judaism from corruption, idolatry, and destruction. And do you know who the Maccabees' inspiration was? Pinchas is their inspiration. It is asserted, Madit Yahu, the father of Judah the Maccabee, when he slew the Jew whom he saw sacrificing to an idol, quote, Maccabees, the book says, he dealt zealously for the law of God, as did Pinchas unto Zimri, the son of Salu. Madit Yahu, Mattathias called in Maccabees, whoever is zealous for the law and maintains the covenant, let him follow me. In other words, be Pinchasi with me. <laughs> let's, let's take zealous action and defend what is being corrupted in our midst. Let's do it like Pinchas. And then we move forward just a little bit, and we find a particularly zealous crew emerging in history in the Second Temple period, just before the turn of the century. Do you know who they are? You can, you can consider who we had in Israel, and, and you've heard me talk about the sects, the, the S-E-C-T-S, the sects, the factions, the Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, Essenes, and, got it, the Kanaim, the Zealots. They too were inspired by Pinchas's zeal to protect the sanctity of Judaism. What were they protecting it from? Idolatry, corruption, murder, from Herodian and Sadducean compromise, from Greek and Roman pagan infiltration. They too were zealous for the law, zealous for Judaism, including, though, performing acts of violence upon their own people who did not agree with them. The zealots or the Sicarii. Peter might have been a zealot. They were justified in their minds by the need to defend what they knew to be right. Judaism must stand as we define it. And the problem that ultimately emerged is zeal can become untethered violence and hate. And that is certainly evident throughout the history of religious people and the church and all done in the name of God. You see, Pinchas didn't make a habit of violence after he did his shish kebab. We don't read about him going around shish kebabbing other people for fun or to get them to think like he did. Pinchas had a covenant of peace. But you see, the zealots were violent based on their assessment of what was right. And regardless, regardless of what they were doing, being good or trying to save Judaism, they were an incredibly destructive force for the Jewish people. And they were, the zealots, the Kanaim, one of the number one reasons why Rome showed up and busted down the temple. Because they were inciting. There were more, more Jewish people were killed inside the walls of Jerusalem than they were outside the walls by these guys and the factionalism and the baseless hatred. 
Josephus reports the nation was infected with their doctrine to an incredible degree, which became the cause of its many misfortunes, the robberies and murders committed. Now, wow, does that sound familiar and hauntingly relevant? <laughs> what started as good, rejecting idolatry and the spirit of Pinchas became bad. It was that, Sinat Hinam, that ultimately splintered the Jewish people so badly through factionalism that they destroyed themselves from the inside out. Now, what does this have to do with Paul? Well, in a way, Paul was another Pinchas-inspired zealot. Not a zealot like those guys, the Kanaim, but zealous for the law. Zealous for Judaism. A man of apparently justified anger who acted violently. Our brother Paul, and we know about Paul's early career. Right? Paul tells us. How did Paul originally gain his notoriety? What was he famous for? Persecuting people. Persecuting who? The way. People who thought differently than him. People who he perceived as a challenge to Judaism. That was Paul's victim, committing idolatry, worshiping another god, corrupting the ancient traditions. He tells us in Galatians about himself. You've heard of my former way of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Paul was functioning with the spirit of Pinchas. He says in Acts 22, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God just as you all are today. Jewish zeal in the time of Yeshua, you need to understand it. It was very real and had two main distinguishing features. One, distinctiveness. Distinction. Jews had been selected in the Jewish collective, the Jewish awareness, Jews had been selected by God to live exclusively for him. Covenant people, they would be distinguished from all other people. He had provided a constitution for the Jewish people. It was the Torah, circumcision, food laws, sacred space. Gentiles can only come this far. The temple is ours. This is God's place. You don't come here. These were just a few of the outward manifestations of this inward sense of election that Judaism had. God made Israel special, and the Torah helped to maintain that distinction. The distinction and calling to Torah was important, and it was an exclusive privilege. The second aspect of Jewish, uh, Jewish zeal was a corollary to that. If you weren't Jewish... You're not chosen. For the most part, you're not allowed in here. God might be concerned for the nations. He might have appointed some spiritual prince or angel to guard over the different territories of the nations. But at the end of the day, Gentiles are outside the law. That makes them outlaws, sinners. Sinners, And you can read it all throughout the New Testament. I'm not making that up. You know, sinners, pagans, reference. But, what, but again, what does this have to do with Paul and his zeal and his violent persecution? Well, it turns out everything. Everything. Because Paul was very zealous and Jewish zeal contended right here that Jews are special, Gentiles, get away. 
this new sect, the way, as Paul calls it, was allowing Gentiles to have, in essence, equal status with Jewish people. Paul said, uh-uh, no. You're not going to corrupt what I am so zealous for by allowing... Now, equal status, that's kind of a... That, there's a lot to unpack in that. But, but let's say participation, access to the Jewish God, and all without conversion. And we know that there were God-fearers in the temple... We know that, but, but, but something was different here. And Paul and his zeal said, no way. It's not happening. And he started a Pinchas-like, zealous persecution of the way, both the Gentiles coming in and the Jews who were allowing it, because it was his obligation as a zealous Jew to protect the Judaism that he loved from pollution. Now, people usually imagine that Paul was persecuting the way because they were telling people that they, that they didn't need the Torah anymore. That Paul was, he was mad about that, and so that's why the former Paul was persecuting. Now, the truth in some sense is the movement was telling people, Gentiles, you do need the Torah. The exact opposite. You do need the Torah, at least the God of the Torah, and you need to abandon idolatry, you need to get rid of fornication. And that is, in essence, what was being taught to these outlaws who were learning these things in the walls of Paul's synagogues. Not going to happen. I will go across land and sea to persecute you and keep that from happening because I am zealous, Paul said. And the Torah is incredibly important to consider here. Because for many people, Paul's conversion, let's hold that word up in quotes, okay? Paul's conversion. That involves, for most people, most the theological paradigms, a change in Paul's mind toward Judaism, right? This is, this is a given. Everyone in this room knows this. That once Yeshua appeared to him, he understood the horrendous shortcomings of his former life as a Jew, and worse, his unnecessary, evil connection to the Torah. Freedom was now in the form of grace in Jesus, and he no longer, thank God, needed to earn his way to heaven. Paul had been delivered from the works of the law. And Romans 7 seems, seems, to make that clear, he says, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? I'm going to let you in on a little teaser for a Roman series that I'm working on. I don't know when it will ever be finished. Paul's not talking about himself. Are you familiar with a rhetorical device in writing called speech in character? That is the furthest thing from what a Jewish person would think or feel about the Torah. To say, wretched man, I've got this curse of the law on me. That is the most un-Jewish statement. And Paul is this zealous Jew. The Torah was not a curse, it was an exclusive gift. Exclusive gift, especially for a zealous Jew, a Pharisee. 
He was, he was proud, is proud in the present tense in Acts of being a practicing Pharisee. His zeal, his teachers, his heritage, circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to the zeal, a persecutor of the community of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, Paul talking about himself, found blameless. Man. This guy doesn't seem to be worried at all about the wretched life or the horrible, sinning, despicable person that he was, is. He has no indication in his writings of being consumed with guilt about sin or his failure to follow God's Torah. But the other assumption about Paul and his Judaism is that at his conversion, he realized something. He, not only did, do we read in our taught that he you know, abandoned Judaism, but that he totally turned his, his mind toward Judaism. That he realized at that point at the Damascus Road that it was this harsh, unforgiving religion that required perfection to God's standard. In other words, Paul finally got the message on the Damascus Road. Judaism is about legalism and earning your way to heaven. Thank God I've been delivered. That's not at all what was happening. Right? We, of course, know this. This is Talk about rhetorical. This is rhetorical for this, this community, but not for everybody. So that's why I'm sharing it. That is not Judaism. Legalism through the Torah, earning your way to heaven by following commandments. That's not Judaism. That is not the Judaism that Paul or any Jew in his day was familiar with. And again, to election, Israel was chosen, not because of special quality or character, but because God chose them. That was it. Simple. You're small. You're not great. There's nothing perfect about you. I chose you because I wanted to. That's what paraphrase. And in that choosing, he had even created a system of human repentance and divine forgiveness within the Torah for living with God on this planet. Okay? But to make the point once again, this was for Jews within the covering of the Torah to be Jewish was good, special, chosen, and something to be protected with zeal. And he did just that like Pinchas and the Maccabees and even to some degree the Kanim, the Zealots. Paul, like the Blues Brothers, was on a mission from God <laughs> to protect Judaism from corruption, idolatry of the, of the Gentiles and of the Jews who would corrupt the system with Gentile pollution. So imagine his surprise. Well, golly, on Damascus, when Yeshua met him and asked, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Yeshua. I'm Jesus who you're persecuting. But get up and enter the city and it will be told what you must do. This is an absolutely underemphasized, incorrectly emphasized moment. I want you to hear what Yeshua doesn't say. 
He says nothing about Paul's Judaism or his sinful life or abandoning Torah. He does not ask him to stop being Jewish, to renounce his heritage, hate his past. He is confronting directly Paul's misdirected zeal, his baseless hatred toward God's children. That's what the conversation is about. Paul, what are you doing, man? And Paul gets it. He has misdirected zeal, and a change is a-coming from James D.G. Dunn. Paul tells us quite explicitly what he was saved from. Not from being Jewish, not from following Torah. Paul was not even concerned, if you can believe this, about burning in hell. He just wasn't concerned about that. That's not what he was saved from. It was being a persecutor of the followers of Jesus. When he recalls his earlier life in Judaism, the first thing that comes to mind for Paul is that he was a persecutor. For you have heard of my former way of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. 1 Corinthians 15, 8 and 9, for I am the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. But he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace toward me did not prove in vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Paul's a big fan of grace. And he got a whole heck of a lot of it to correct his misdirected zeal against harming the children of God. And he is very clear about what he was saved to. Saved from, through grace, being a horrendous, overzealous, misdirected, persecutor, murderer, hater of people, saved to not Christianity in the classic definition. He was not converted from Judaism. He was, you ready for his conversion? Talk about Paul's conversion. You know what Paul converted to on the road to Damascus? The Gentiles. That's his conversion. But when he who had set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. This is one of so many scriptures I could pull out for you of Paul. But he does says, 1 Corinthians 9, If I'm not an apostle to others, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Talking to the Gentiles in Corinth. I am the apostle to the Gentiles. And ultimately, Paul's realization is one of grace. And yes, he likes grace. But not grace versus law. Run the Torah over with a bulldozer. We're done with that crap. Which is, how, which is, it's an abomination, actually, that, that that is how people view Paul viewing the Torah. Grace, he received grace for his misdirected zeal and baseless hatred to a realization that God's zealous love is actually baseless love, not sinat chinam, the other word is ahavat sinam. Baseless love. That's what God gave him. 
and that he has missed the mark and by God's grace and through Messiah Yeshua, he sees the error. He's given this chance to radically transform, to see that God's faithfulness has been promised through Abraham to the whole world, Genesis 12. And that he made this, God made this a reality, this baseless love, this faithfulness that God has demonstrated through Yeshua. He has made that available to the, through the one who confronted him. And Paul realizes this can't, not, this can't be based on Jewish identity alone. It's not bloodline. It's not chosen status. Participation in God's kingdom is founded on faith in the baseless love, a chavat hinam, that Yeshua showed. Yeshua had no reason to do that. Like, in logical terms, Yeshua should have just set up the kingdom and said, mission accomplished, daddy, beam me up, let's get this thing done. But he didn't. He demonstrated a chavat hinam, baseless love for those who did not deserve it, who had no other way in. Read Ephesians 2. Remember, remember, Yeshua did this for the ones that he said early on, don't even talk to them. I didn't come for them. Woman, get away. Even the dogs deserve crumbs. And you see that evolution through Yeshua's ministry of seeing the centurion and the Syrophoenician woman, and you see all these things where he's, he's saying, no, I, I, I've, this has to be fixed. And Paul sees through the journey, just as the disciples in Acts were seeing and were amazed by, and you can read Acts, wow, God has intended to function for the nations as he has for us. We're Jewish people, and we are supposed to... Wow. Man, I was wrong. Paul says, he chose us to participate. Unqualified, unqualified, unmerited. Still, Jews were failing regularly in our part of the deal. But he continues to show us baseless love. And keep in mind the world around Paul at this time. We're talking about the factionalism. Jews killing Jews. Romans killing Jews. Hatred motivated by zeal. Sinat chinam. And Paul's transformation was not from Jew to Christian. A redirection of his passionate zeal, which was in no way diminished. Paul never stopped being zealous. Right? Never. It was incumbent upon him, he realized, God has shown us, the Jewish people, baseless love. Now I'm finding out that through this man I met on the Damascus Road, who's the Messiah, he is the, he is the fulfillment of God's baseless love, and I must also walk and act in baseless love. Which you begin to see Paul doing, except when he's saying, I wish you would castrate yourself, and you know, those kinds of things that Paul says sometimes. <laughs> He still loved. Castrate yourself in love. <laughs> Paul traded in his spear for, as we discussed last week, the still small voice. Although his voice wasn't ever really small. You can imagine Paul probably took up a lot of space in a room. But this, this became Paul's gospel. You read about it. My gospel, Paul says. This is my gospel that the world is bigger than the Jewish people and that I made a wrong choice 
in my persecutions and my baseless hatred, and my life will be turned. He turned on the Damascus Road. It's interesting that in order to see what God wanted him to see, he was blind. Isn't that interesting? When you see, when your vision comes back, you'll see really what I mean. And it turns out, as many displays of baseless love are, that it was not real popular for Paul to make this transition. You know, Yeshua did a lot of things operating in baseless love. He, 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 he healed women with issues of blood. He healed people on the Sabbath. He, he, he helped a woman caught in adultery. And all of his answers were so beautiful. They were about preserving life, demonstrating love, not taking life, not hating and as I concluded last week, I'll conclude this week. There is a lot of zeal, particularly through the ages in religion and often demonstrated very, very poorly. And more and more, more and more, factionalism is going to destroy us. It is going to destroy the country that you live in and the world you live in. Now, don't, I don't want you to do this thing and says, it's all good. Jesus is coming back. It's got to go in the toilet before it raises up. I know that. I understand the big eschatological plan. I know how it works. But that doesn't mean that we function as despicable, zealot haters in the world. There's enough sinat chinam, misdirected zeal leading to baseless hatred. Paul had it. Paul had it. He was doing it for all the right reasons, right? In the name of God, I'm going to kill you. Until the conversation, not conversion on the road, he had a picture of God, serving God, protecting God. It was a hard, hard realization for him. These Gentiles get to be with us. And as I said that, this week as I was writing those words, Darren, you can cue up that video. I had the most random thought pop into my head and I was going to share it, but I just want to show it as a demonstration of baseless love. It has, a, it has a deep south ignorant racial epithet in it, but you can, you, you'll get the point and I'll make it clear. George Wallace had carried out his symbolic threat to stand in the schoolhouse door. I take it from that uh, statement that uh, All right. What's going on? Coons are trying to get into school. Coons? Well, raccoons trying to get on our back porch. Mama just chased them off with a broom. Not raccoons, you idiots. And they want to go to school with us. With us? They do? Shortly after Governor Wallace had carried out his promise to block the doorway, President Kennedy ordered the Secretary of Defense then to use military force. Here by videotape is the encounter by General Graham, Commander of the National Guard, and Governor Wallace. Because these National Guardsmen were here today as federal soldiers on Alabama, and they live within our borders, and they are our brothers. We are winning in this fight because we are awakening the American people to the dangers that we have spoken about so many times is so evident today the trend toward military dictatorship in this country. And so at day's end, the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa had been desegregated and students Jimmy Hood and Vivian Malone 
had been signed up for summer classes. Ma'am, you dropped your book. Ma'am. Governor Wallace did what he promised to do. By being on the Tuscaloosa campus, he kept them off from gathering and hey, wouldn't that go? Do you get the point? I'll help you see it. He may be operating from ignorance because he's Forrest Gump, but he's operating from a genuine sense of baseless love for humanity. He couldn't see that that girl was black, and he didn't care about, you felt all the zeal in the crowd. Governor Wallace, we're doing this for the right reasons, by God. We're not letting anyone in here who looks different than us, acts different than us. And Forrest Gump pulls a Paul and says, nah, it's not that way. She's in need. He shows up and doesn't give two about what anyone thinks. Like I said, Forrest Gump is a joke. He, it's, it's operating in, that's the whole thing. He's operating in ignorance. We must operate in intention in our baseless love toward one another. Our society is going to be destroyed. I understand that eventually, but let's not contribute to it now if we can help it. Practice, remember these bumper stickers back when I used to be a very angry person and I would see this bumper sticker that said, practice random acts of kindness and senseless acts of beauty, and I would go, Who really, who really does that? My gosh, we're supposed to. That's the shocking, terrible realization that bumper sticker was correct. Practice random acts of kindness and senseless acts of beauty. Paul was a zealot. He called Peter out. He parted ways with Barnabas, you know. But at the end of the day, These are Paul's words, and he meant it for everyone. If I speak with the tongues of mankind and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. He says a lot of other great things about love in 1 Corinthians 13. But now faith, hope, and love remain, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Paul understood love had been shown to him, Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were sinners, Messiah died for us. Paul was zealous, but he wasn't going to be one of those zealots, the ones who tear down, hurt, kill, destroy. I'm not playing that game, he said. I don't care where you're listening to me from. The seats in Macon, England, South Africa, Canada, Australia, things probably aren't great where you are. There are a lot of people that are growing further and further from God. There are a lot of of enemies of God who seem hell-bent on the destruction of all that we hold dear. And as I say every time, I am not suggesting that in baseless acts of love, we kowtow to some hellacious evil ideology. That's not what I'm saying. We first do need to ask ourselves, though, if we have a lock on what is consistent with God. Last thing, I know I've talked a while, but I told you about that podcast My goodness, I have been humbled. I have been been sometimes too critical of, of the church and have had my own bit of Elijah syndrome. 
that Messianic Judaism, God, we're the only ones. God says to Elijah, there are 7,000 others. These podca- this podcast and link to another podcast and, and finding all of these Christian scholars who so much get it. Not that we have a lock, but they, they get Paul. They, they understand Yeshua. They understand Torah and they're teaching it and they're right alongside. We're interlocked in arms. We're not alone in any way. But it's humbling to realize you can't say, you can't generalize that everything is bad and think that you're the sole defender. There's so much good in the world still. So much. And in this season of our mourning and reflection on the power of baseless hatred to destroy and tear down, it is incumbent upon us to reflect how we, like Paul, might trade in any hate for some version of love, even with those that we might easily want to hate. We are the ones who on some level can demonstrate the ahavat chinam that God has shown to us because we are created in His image. Shabbat Shalom.